Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We have a founder that is going to be talking to us about this rocket ship that he's building. But more in particular, we're going to be discussing topics like product market fit, death experiences with investors pulling a term sheet just with three weeks of runway, evolving as a CEO. As you know, you go from cycle to cycle and you need to make sure that the company is not outpacing you. So he's going to be telling us his uh, journey, you know, with that, and then also maintaining culture as you scale amongst other things. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, David Rabi. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So originally born and raised in Los Angeles to a family of entrepreneurs. Tell us, how was life growing up? Uh, I had a great childhood and I, I was raised uh, to want to be an entrepreneur. I, I never wanted to enter corporate America and I always wanted to start my own company. And I remember as a little kid thinking, okay, I'm going to start a company, but I, I don't like anything. What kind of company am I going to start? But I knew I wanted to start a company and it wasn't until I turned 18 and, and went on this health retreat that I realized my passion lies in food and health and wellness. And that's where I should probably point all my energy. So at what point did it become evident that you did not want to do corporate America and that your future was, you know, always in building companies? I cannot remember a single point in time when I wanted to join a big company my whole life. I, don't, I never wanted to work for someone else beyond doing it for a few years to learn. But I never saw that as my path of, of climbing the corporate ladder. Now, in your case, you know, eventually one thing that uh, that really made a, a difference is, I mean, you went to school and then, you know, obviously you, you, you went into working at this large scale uh, restaurant. But before doing that, you went to China. And one thing I want to ask you is, how do you think that getting out of the U.S., especially going to China, changed your perspective towards, you know, looking at things? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I decided to go to China. This was 2009. China was still booming. The U.S. was in the midst of an economic recession. Uh, and I thought there was a lot of action happening in China and I would learn a lot of things. And that was true. China was exploding. It felt like buildings were going up on a weekly basis and there was a hive of economic activity. Um, and I nearly started a business there. We, we had a, I was there with a friend. We had a great business idea. But it didn't feel like home to me. And, and so I had no interest in settling down and, and building something for the long haul. And so I ended up coming back to the U.S. But I'm a big believer in traveling, opening up your eyes and seeing different cultures uh, helps you grow as a person. And, and that was definitely my experience living in China for a few months. So obviously not so much uh, corporate, but definitely when you came back, you went and, and, and wor you were working for this company called Veggie Grill. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that that was quite a fulfilling experience because it was right up your alley in, in your interest and passion. Yeah, it was amazing. Veggie Grill was, I'd say, one of the first more commercial plant-based restaurant chains uh, in the country, and they had a truly evangelical following of customers. Uh, people that worked there loved it. They loved the brand. They loved the product. They loved each other. Uh, and the company had huge ambitions. And, and I was fortunate to be able to work uh, not only in the restaurant, but for one of the founders uh, and do a bunch of different 
random projects for him uh, at a young age. And so was able to learn a lot from him, learn a lot from this great culture and, and brand, um, and it kind of inspired me to want to go build something similar. Not, not a plant-based restaurant, but a company that had similar love from its employees and its customers. Now, after this experience, you were recruited by Groovy Spoon Frozen Yogurt to be the COO. So a COO, you know, right away at such a young age, you know, I'm sure that this was quite a, a pivotal moment for you too. Yeah, it was, it was a small business and uh, I was still pretty happy at the Veggie Grill, but I thought this is an opportunity to basically run a company at a, at a very young age, uh, frankly, probably make a ton of mistakes and learn uh, before I go do it myself. And, and so I took this leap of faith and it was an incredible learning opportunity. Uh, I was thrown into the job. There was almost no infrastructure. Uh, I was given a lot of freedom to figure out how to grow this business. Um, and I learned. I learned a lot about what it means to manage people, manage up, manage down, uh, have true ownership over outcomes and a P&L and, and all of that. Um, and while Tavala is at a much more significant scale than, than Groovy Spoon was, I do think a lot of the time I spent there helped me uh, prepare for what I'm doing now. So then it sounds like uh, you were scaling up pretty quickly through the ranks. Uh, at what point did it become evident that business school was the right next stop for you? Yeah, I had actually always wanted to go to business school. I, I wanted to study business. I went to an undergrad that didn't have business as a major, and, and I've always been fascinated about business. Um, and I thought it'd be a great life experience. So out of undergrad, I, I was very much planning to go to business school. I, I took my GMATs the summer after I graduated college. Uh, so knew I was kind of on a three to five year time horizon to go to business school. Um, and after, a, I don't know, it was like a, a couple of years, a year and a half at Groovy Spoon, I decided, all right, now's the time. And, and I also wanted a ticket out of California. I had spent my, my whole life in California, uh, aside from small stints abroad, and I wanted to try something different. And, and so I landed in Chicago um, and, and thought for a number of reasons, Booth would be a really great place for me to expand my network and, and frankly, get a business off the ground. Uh, my, my plan in going into business school was I'm going to start a company, incubate it at, at school and use that as a launching pad. Now, during this time at business school, I mean, obviously you did a mobile app for sports. So that was a really nice stint there that, uh, you know, got your feet wet. But. Some of the other things that you did while you were at school to kind of like uh, continue to learn and to really understand how it would look like if you were really to launch your baby, your thing, was working at places like Google or even at a venture capital firm. So why did you choose, you know, those two initiatives and uh, what kind of, you know, mindset or, or worldview did it open up for you? Yeah, I think my, my intent in going, I interned at Google for a summer uh, Google is one of the greatest companies ever founded. And I thought, okay, if I can just pick up two or three things about what makes this place magical, what, what they've done here, how they built great culture, um, it'll be worth it. And, and I think I did. And this was many years ago now, but I do think I learned a bunch of things. I also was trying to meet people that maybe could help me with Tavala. Tavala at that point was an idea. Um, so I, I had started to think, okay, maybe this is what I'm going to end up doing after I graduate a year later. And, and I thought Google would be a great place to network and, and start to build connections. So un undoubtedly, it helped with, with those things. And then uh, I was fortunate to get an opportunity to spend some time with Foundation Capital, uh, a Silicon Valley-based fund. And really what I was hoping to learn there is what's it like on the other side of the table. 
because uh, I figured if I'm going to go build a company, I had eyes on building a, a high growth company, we were going to need to raise venture capital. And, and the more I could learn about how VCs think and how deals come together from the other side of the table, I, I thought it would give me some edge uh, when it was time for us to go raise capital for, for my company. So then let's talk about that, because uh, eventually the idea of Tobala, you know, finally that idea that you were hoping that one day would knock on your door, no? since uh, you were little and you wanted to become an entrepreneur, eventually that door was knocked. And how did that happen? And what was that process of uh, looking into it, incubating it and, and bringing it to market? Yeah, I, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, I had a bit of an aha moment. Uh, for me, I was cooking for myself. Um, it was a Sunday. I was spending multiple hours cooking my, my food for the week. And I was using, I think, three different appliances in my home. And I had this moment of frustration of, I'm just sitting in my kitchen, babysitting these appliances, pushing buttons. Why couldn't you automate this? And that was the first aha of, okay, that would make life a lot more convenient if you could automate this part of the experience. And then as I started talking to people, I, I started talking to people about this concept, it became clear, sure, you can automate the cooking, but that only solves one part of the journey. The, the journey really begins at what am I going to have for dinner? Then it, buys, then, it, then it moves to, okay, I've, I've made my decision. I'm going to go buy ingredients from here or I'm going to order food from there. Um, if you buy the ingredients, you got to prepare them. Then you have to do the cooking and then you have to do the cleaning. And the question is, how do, you, how do you solve that whole journey, but still deliver a great product at the end of the day and eliminate all the time and energy that goes into making that meal in the first place? And so after a lot of conversations, a lot of feedback with what I thought were potential customers for this product, the concept quickly evolved and became more of a system where, okay, we're going to control the food experience. Whatever the device ends up looking like, we're going to connect those pieces with software so that we can deliver this great home-cooked meal, but not, not really have any work left on the hand of the, the end customer. Um, and so once I kind of coalesced around that concept, I took it through six different classes in business school. It was kind of my case study or my project in those classes. Um, I found basically every grant dollar the university had to offer to would-be entrepreneurs. I tried to meet with every alum that was a venture capitalist or former founder, build my network, soak up as much as I could in terms of learnings. And then by my last quarter in business school, uh, the University of Chicago booth has a business plan competition called the New Venture Challenge. And we took it through this competition. Um, and, and the hope was, okay, if we can win in the competition, it'll put us on the map in Chicago. At the time, it came with $70,000 of funding. So we'll get some capital to hopefully pour into R&D uh, and, and try to get off and running. And uh, it's a long story in and of itself, but fortunately, we, we won the competition in 2015 uh, and, and really haven't looked back since. So then talk to us about finding product market fit. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it took us just to go back a little bit. It took us about two years after we won the competition to, to launch our product. Um, so we, we won in the summer of 2015. We went through Y Combinator. We, we launched on Kickstarter. And then um, early summer, late spring of 2017, we finally launched in homes. And, and everything kind of went live at the same time. So we started shipping ovens across the country. We started shipping food across the whole United States. The ovens went online. Uh, we started taking orders for more food. So this very complex business that we had been building for all 12 to 18 months, all of a sudden was now live in homes. And, and we were hoping everything worked. 
And very quickly, we started to get some very positive signals. People loved the food and they were reordering. And after six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, we started to see, okay, yeah, we're only talking, you know, hundreds of customers, but the retention rates on these customers are significantly better than what we had forecast and uh, what we had seen in, in, you know, other meal kit companies or prepared food companies. And so that started to give us an inkling that we were onto something. And, and then as the business scaled, um, not significantly, but started to scale, those retention rates held and even started to improve. And so there was frankly a, a big internal debate, I would say, as to whether we had product market fit or not, because we had customers that were obsessed with the product and the word of mouth was amazing and the retention was amazing. It was multiples higher than the peer set. So not incrementally higher, but we were playing a different game. But what we didn't have was the other side of the equation. We were struggling to get people in the door and, and achieve that hockey stick growth that is expected when you, when you go raise venture dollars. And, and so it was this ongoing debate whether we had it or didn't have it. And uh, you know, I think where we finally coalesced was around, we're not going to have it until demand outstrips supply. So we have a product people love, but they're not pining for it. They're not they're not driving so much interest in it yet. Like we are missing one part of the, the fit. And, and then that happened. Uh, in the fall of 2019, uh, it was September of 2019, we made some big changes to how we positioned the product in the market and how we priced it. And our growth just exploded. Um, overnight, we started selling 50% more ovens. And the next week, it was 50% again, then 50% again. And, and the business just took off and, and we broke. Like we, we literally could not supply enough ovens or food. So we had to turn off our marketing for days at a time. We had to throw our corporate team into our food facilities to pack boxes and get food out the door. Um, but then when we, you know, at the end of the year, we looked at our chart and it was a hockey stick. Like truly the business was kind of growing steadily and then up and to the right out of nowhere. Hmm. That's amazing. So I guess for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so it's very similar to Nespresso or Keurig or, you know, a razor blade in, in that sense where our goal is not to sell and profit off ovens. The goal is get on the customer's countertop so that we can sell them a lot of food. And so we're willing to eat some loss on the oven in order to do that. And, and when we think about our customer acquisition cost, it is partially uh, what we lose or gain on the oven uh, and then whatever we go spend on marketing. But once we're on the countertop, we own what we think is the most valuable real estate in the home. It's Tavala is basically like this ongoing advertisement in people's homes. And so part of that is what drives the really strong retention and, and lifetime value that we see from our customers because every day they're staring at the oven and, and they're using it. They're using it for their own food and our meals. Um, and so that's always been the game is let's get on as many counters as possible and then we can sell them more food. We can improve our margins on the food. We can start to sell third-party food. And, and we have, we've driven up the, the spend every year uh, that, that we've been in existence. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process. 
whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And also, you know, for that growth, I mean, once you get that hockey stick, you know, it's time to put some, some fuel on the fire. So how much capital have you guys raised today? We've raised a little over $100 million um, over, over multiple rounds. And I know that that's, that has not been an easy, you know, journey because there was quite a, you know, really, you know, adrenaline moment during COVID. What happened there? Yeah, we, we went to raise our Series B at the beginning of 2020, uh, really off the back of this hockey stick growth and industry leading retention and, and some nice margin improvement. And, and there was a ton of interest in the deal. And uh, we signed a term sheet um, towards the end of January of, of 2020, just a, a few days after my, my first daughter, Elizabeth, was born. Uh, and then one month later, um, the deal came apart. And uh, well, we won't get into why, but it came apart in a very unexpected way. Um, really no, no bad actors on, on either side, but it came apart. And because we were, you know, uh, in, in long time search of product market fit, we didn't have a lot of runway. And, and we knew when, you know, we had raised a, a bridge round uh, in the summer of 2019, and that had bought us about a year of runway, a little less. And we knew, all right, that's it. Like we got to find product market fit or this business won't exist. And the second we find it, we're going to have to go raise money. Um, and so when the deal came apart, we had less than a month of runway left in the bank. Um, ton of employees to support in, on our corporate team and in our, our production teams. Um, and this was the very end of February of 2020. So it was the first week the market had really collapsed. The Dow fell 10,000 points that week. Um, but COVID was not yet uh, a truly understood concept beyond, hey, there is this really bad virus that's circulating and, and who knows what it's going to do to the economy. Um, and so the next, uh, well, first the next few days and the next month were this period of insane uncertainty. Uh, and what we had to do was go back to our existing investors, explain what happened, uh, offer very lucrative terms in order to secure a small amount of capital to bridge the business and, and allow us to keep everyone's jobs. Um, and, and the reason we're able to do that is we, we had investors that really believed in us. They believed in the vision. They had seen us execute. And I think there was a lot of conviction that, hey, we, we really found something here. The business is exploding. and there is obviously some risk that the world shuts down for a long period of time and no business exists, but there's also some upside that maybe maybe this crazy pandemic thing will be good for a business like ours, um, which, which ultimately is what happened. And so we closed this small bridge round and then went back to trying to raise a full Series B in the very early days of COVID, which was pretty crazy. Um, some crazy things happened to us then too, like we had other deals come apart the first few weeks of March, but by the end of March of 2020, we'd secured a term sheet. Um, and closed our Series B a, a little bit after that. 
I mean, it sounds like very um, crazy uncertain moments, literally that you're like walking on a very thin line and at any moment you can just like uh, slip and, and fall. Uh, so who do you think you needed to be during that time as a leader, as a founder, to be able to keep pushing through in such a difficult moment? It's a really good question. Um, I don't think I pretended to be anyone to start. I, I do think there's multiple ways to lead companies, and I think you have to be authentic. Um, otherwise, it doesn't work. That's that's my own personal view. In that moment, I was um, I tried to be very confident, uh, very inspiring, very transparent with our team uh, as to what happened and why and what were the implications, but inspire belief in in our company's mission. Um, and I think we did that. And I don't think it was just me. I think it was our, our leadership team, my co-founder. Um, nobody walked out the door when we told everyone, hey, we've got you know, weeks of runway left. Uh, people stood by us. And, and that trust it was rewarded. We, we ended up raising money and um, had, you know, 2020 was a hard year in a lot of ways, but it was a very successful year for the business. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's how I showed up in that moment. And, you know, in times of adversity, that's what we've tried to do is uh, be transparent, be confident um, and and use a lot of the capital we've built over the years of of treating our team with autonomy, treating them with respect, building trust in those difficult moments. That's when all the work over the years and all the investment in culture pays off. Um, you, you can't expect to not invest in culture. And then when things get bad have everyone stand by your side and, and run through a wall for you. Like that's, that's investment you have to make over time. And let's double click on, on culture. Now, now that you guys have raised over a hundred million and that you are, you know, really making a killing. How do you, how, how have you guys gone about maintaining culture in, 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 in such a period of crazy growth? Yeah, it's really hard. I don't, we're definitely not the experts by any means. And we, we have gone through multiple periods of transition with our culture. I think the, the culture pre-product market fit, uh, pre-COVID, when it's a bunch of people all together in one big room trying to figure this thing out, um, is different than the culture of a growth stage startup. Um, and we, we did our best to manage that transition in, a, in an authentic way. And I think there are some key elements of our culture that haven't changed since day one, but there's a lot that have changed. And, and I think that's been really important for us of how does our culture and our values evolve as the business grows and the, the needs of the business change. Um, and, and personally, as I evolve as a leader, and I think that the company took on some of my, my best strengths in its culture and, and some of my biggest weaknesses. And my weaknesses are things that I've worked on and, and we as a company have had to work on uh, that manifested in our culture. And so uh, to me, the biggest thing is that for us, culture has never been an afterthought. And it's been something we've paid an immense amount of attention to since day one. And, um, you know, what, what sets our culture apart, I think, is a deep, deep investment in our people and care for our people that permeates the whole organization. So anyone that joins within a few weeks is... The feedback we always hear is people here are so incredibly kind, they're very caring, and there's no politics somehow. Like people just don't politic at Tavala. And and that's been true since day one. And and I think that is a such a defining part of our culture. And the the only other thing I'll add is these kind of huge roadblocks that we run into, these existential threats, they come to define the culture, how we responded, what happened. 
becomes part of company lore and, and becomes cemented in how people perceive what it means to be a Tavala, what it means to, to be a Tavalan. Uh, and, and those are really positive things for us. Even though they, they, we have had all these difficult moments, we came through the other side a stronger organization. And having done that many times in a row now, it's a central part of who we are. So obviously when these people join, they, they you know, obviously join because they are very, they find very compelling the future that you guys are living into, no? And, and that vision ultimately is going to shape up a little bit the culture, so or a lot the culture, because you got to get people rowing at the same, you know, time towards the same goal, no? Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, David, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Tavala is fully realized. What does that world look like? I don't think it exists. Uh, I, I will say that. I think the vision will always be out of reach and we'll keep going to it. But I think our big vision is to get on every countertop in this country and to be able to help people enjoy amazing home-cooked food without any work. Uh, and I think we're on our way to doing that. I think there, we obviously have a long ways to go. Uh, the reality is most people don't know we exist, uh, even though we've, we've built some scale to the business. Um, but the love and joy we hear from our customers on a daily basis uh, that's reflected in our retention rates and our usage rates. We want to bring that to the whole country and, and we want to do it in a way that appeals to different diets and different price points and different uh, places people go buy their food. And, and we're starting to do that as the business expands and we add a lot more types of food to our menu and, and we expand our distribution channels beyond direct to consumer and uh, we expand beyond one oven. Now we've got two ovens on the market. I think we're on our way to achieving the vision, but um, Still a long ways to go. How do you think that consciousness um, now, I mean, before, you know, people were like, I remember, you know, McDonald's and, you know, a culture of like crazy, you know, junk food. But now people are very conscious about taking care of themselves, you know, the diet, the cooking at home. How do you think that, you know, open mindset, you know, about and also consciousness around, you know, health and diet, how do you think that has helped you guys to be at the right time in history? Yeah, I think that's been a tailwind for probably 10, 15 years, 20 years that has undoubtedly helped us. I think people are more conscious of what they're eating. They're willing to spend more to eat better. Um, and that's a big part of our appeal. What I will say, though, that I think is a, a truism of uh, America and of any food business is that if your food doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter. And, and that has been true for us since day one. It's been a core principle that no matter what, our food has to taste great. If, if our tech is amazing and the app is amazing and the oven looks great and the packaging is eco-friendly and you know great experience, but the food doesn't taste good, nothing else matters. Um, so that's been true since day one. And the other thing that is true in this country, and it's been just a gradual march in this direction, is convenience wins. Like, for, for as healthy as people want to be and as much as people claim they want to cook, people want things that are easy. And that's the defining trait of many, many successful companies in, in the country and in the world. And we play well into that. Uh, we, we are trying to give people the convenience, but without compromising on quality. And for a lot of people, they, they actually don't believe you can have those two things. And that's something we have to get over for folks is, yeah, the meal is actually going to taste amazing. And you, you just scan a Coke. Uh, and skepticism is one of the biggest barriers to adoption for us. People just don't believe it is as good or as true as we claim it's going to be. 
Now, let's reverse a little bit the question that I asked you earlier about future ambition. I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. So let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. And I bring you back in time to that moment where you were maybe like cooking at home and and all of a sudden, you know, like the idea that ended up becoming Tabala, you know, like hits you. You're like at that moment, like, oh my God, you know, I think that finally, finally I get my calling, you know, on what I should be pursuing as an entrepreneur. Let's say you are able to all of a sudden show up right there with that younger David, you know, nine years earlier, no? back in, in that year, 2014, when, you know, things were hitting you with this. And let's say you were able to give that younger David one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? <laughs> that's a great question. I was going to joke and say, don't do it, but that's not, that's not what I would tell him. Um, one piece of advice. I would probably tell him that focus is going to be the number one thing. The number one thing. It's so easy to say, but there's so many distractions when you're starting and running a company and it's so easy to try to do too many things. And existential threats will focus you, running out of money will focus you. And, and some of those things happen to us and forced insane amounts of focus. But many other times in our existence, we were scattered. We were trying seven different things and um, you know, lured by all of these exciting potential initiatives when we should have been hyper-focused. So I think that's probably the one piece of advice I would give, and, I, and I'm sure much younger me would ignore it. Uh, and think, of course, I'm going to focus. That sounds nice. But in hindsight, I think it's, it's one of the most important things. Amazing. So, David, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? You can send me an email. Uh, it's just, I got the first email at Tavala. So it's david at Tavala.com. Easy enough. Well, hey, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.